Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, February 28th, the Cookie Manster edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. This week, we have a special crossover episode planned. So joining me from New York, we have Slate podcast senior managing producer, June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Christina. Welcome to the other week. Uh, We're all one week, Christina. We're all one week. (laughs) One family. I I see no weeks. Uh, I see no weeks. No weak blind people here at The Waves. (laughs) Um, So we are really stoked to have a new guest on the show this week. We've got Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit. Welcome to The Waves, Nicole. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. We're so happy to have you. So this week, we are going to start with a review of One Day at a Time, the Netflix sitcom that just dropped its third season this month. Then we'll talk about a plagiarism scandal in the romance novel industry. And for our third topic, Reply Guys, the guys who reply to every single thing you tweet. For our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to decide whether the near-universal condemnation of Senator Dianne Feinstein for her treatment of a bunch of child protesters is sexist. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know if that's sexist, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. So before we get started, I want to thank all the listeners who wrote in about our segment on Amy Klobuchar. Uh, People wrote in from both sides. We had people who thought we didn't give enough credence to the idea that she was being unfairly criticized because she's a woman. And then we had people who've worked for bosses like Klobuchar who said it's way past time that uh, we stopped giving women passes for behavior like this. I will say uh, to those who saw or identified sexism in the way that these stories have been really gobbled up and and think pieced about for a couple of weeks now – I think it's more the fact that she's running for president than the fact that she's a woman um, as far as why people are really, you know, excited to read about and write about all the ways that she's allegedly a terrible boss. Um, I think if Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders or whoever were throwing office supplies around at their aides, we would also be hearing about it. Um, But yeah, a lot of good perspectives came in about that. Uh, Can I ask you a question, Christina? So did you think that the response to the uh, she ate a salad with a comb story was overblown? I mean, it was fun and funny, but like... I actually got a little mad. Uh, I don't know if you noticed on Slack, June, we had like a little, you know, co-workers talking about it on Slack. And so for those of you who didn't read the new um, or newish New York Times article about these new allegations against her... The lead of the story was about her, you know, her aide forgot to bring her a plastic fork onto a plane to eat her salad with. So she, in an emergency, used her comb from her purse. Like, admittedly, a ridiculous and funny story. But I thought it was incredibly mean to lead with that. And I just thought it didn't necessarily fit with the rest of the allegations in the piece because there was nothing about that story that said she was a bad boss. I've done weird, probably weirder things than that (laughs) that I'm not going to mention here. But like in a pinch, when you're a politician going from place to place and have maybe 20 minutes to eat and you don't have a fork, what are you going to do? You know, use your comb. Well, yeah. Well, I think you could just eat with your hands. It's okay. (laughs) Instead of using like a really filthy, dirty objects, you know, like hair grease or dandruff or whatever. And then to just kind of like pass it back to the assistant and say, no, go clean it. You know, that I don't think that that was sexist, but it was definitely a gender thing. I agree there. And that, you know, I think um, 
I don't know. It was just, it was a lot of detail. And I do think that some of those things were just kind of thrown in to show how weird she was, not right. necessarily how awful she was, but just like, can yeah. you believe this crap? Kind <laughs> of. Exactly. No, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Um, oh, I'm sure we'll have occasion to discuss it again on the waves sometime soon. Uh, all right. One day at a time. The show is a sort of reboot of a Norman Lear sitcom that ran in the late 70s and early 80s. Its third season just premiered on Netflix. June, you're a big fan. Tell us about the show. I love this show so much. It is, every time it starts again, I have this response of like, well, this looks so weird because it is like a classic sitcom. It's like a multicam, you know, taped in front of a live audience kind of show that's old-fashioned you know we did the modern comedies aren't made that way anymore and yet at the same time it feels really really modern to me in an aspirational way um so like the 70s and early 80s predecessor it's about a single mom uh, penelope known as lupita alvarez has two kids elena and alex uh, and she also lives with her mother lydia played by rita moreno I'm just going to pause while I say Rita Moreno. And, <laughs> and Justina Machado plays Penelope, and she is amazing. She actually is yeah. by far the star of the show. She is an incredible actress who has been ill-served by the roles that she's gotten in the past. She's often played scoldy, mean women, and she has such immense warmth. That was a huge waste of her talent. But now she's got this great role. Um, she is a veteran. She, you know, she's, she was a nurse in Afghanistan. She was injured there. Her husband, uh, when she enlisted, uh, had PTSD. They're now separated. She's a single mom and she's dating. Um, and her daughter is queer and her son is a lot, um, although a very good boy. And the thing that I love about the show is that it kind of shows you, again, in an aspir aspirational wish fulfillment way, like, this is what PTSD looks like. This is what homophobia looks like. This is what a close family looks like. This is what family support looks like. This is what alcoholism can do to a relationship. Like, it, it has all that stuff, and yet it is also still, I think, really funny. <laughs> what, what did you all think of it? Well, I started watching the show to talk about it here. Um, it's been on my list since it first came out, of course, to watch. Uh, and I just never took the time because, you know, sometimes you're just like, I'm not ready for anything new. Let me yeah. just keep going with my comfort <laughs> binges. Right. Um, but I started watching it and... I am in love with this show. Oh, my God. Um, some of the those old, you know, sitcom ticks do annoy me. Like, I do think sometimes they can be, you know, the actors play things a little too broadly for me yep. and whatever. But I just love the way that it's been modernized and the topics that they cover. I love, you know, for some people, it may bother them that um, the family is so self-referential to being mm. Cuban. Mm. And... But as a black woman, that's what happens in our households. Like we are constantly just talking about referring to our culture, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm assuming that white people probably do the same thing. You know, they're talking about, well, you know, here's where this is really Catholic of us right. or this is really Irish of us right. or whatever the situation may be. I don't know. But for me even though I'm not Cuban, but I am black, I am African-American, to see that this family constantly refers to its culture and usually in a very positive, sometimes teasing way, you know, mocking a little bit. But that just, that just really stood out to me. And I, I just, I'm absolutely in love with the show. And I, I, I cannot, I can't believe that Netflix constantly has, as you know, basically putting on these begging campaigns, please keep this show, bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Nicole. I, uh, it's sometimes the fact that they're constantly saying like, well, as Cuban people, we blah, 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 felt like I felt, oh, my God, is this uh, it, it, it made me wonder whether the jokes were coming from inside the house for yeah. people mm -hmm. yeah. inside the community. Or mm -hmm. was it like trying to make it seem funny to people who aren't part of that culture? But I, I think you're right now that I think about it. It's like, you know. They're also making it so that their culture is not incidental to their characters. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's an integral part of who they are and how they interact. And, and that's really good to see. I have a, a lot of mixed feelings about this show. I mm -hmm. watched two episodes of the 
uh, second season a while back when June, you first recommended it to me. Um, and I could not keep watching it because I was just like cringing so hard the entire time because it is incredibly corny. Yeah. I mean, for me, it felt like every episode is like a public service announcement. You know, it's mm-hmm. I, I watched the recap of season two before starting season three this past weekend. And I was like, oh, my God, literally everything happened. Like, there's a first kiss. Somebody's citizenship is called into question. There's like, do we want to have kids? There's a stroke. There's a ghost that that comes into the picture. Like, Mm -hmm. everything that could possibly happen. And then in season three, it's like... Uh, gentrification, uh, harassment, uh, sexual assault, drug addiction, uh, gun violence, like every episode. I'm like, when are they going to address climate change? Now there's like a running (laughs) list in my head of issues that they haven't covered because it's shorter than the issues they have. Right. Um, But then I was like, well, but I finished season three. You know, I kept watching it. Somehow the characters... Because they're so, and this is true of a lot of sitcoms, I think, which I just don't watch a lot, so it's kind of new for me. The characters are, they're more than one-dimensional, but not quite three-dimensional. Yeah. I'll say maybe they're two-dimensional. Yeah. So they're they're easy to, uh, they feel very lived in because there's so little to get. So you kind of immediately feel like you know them and come to expect things from them. And that is a very comforting feeling. Yeah, it, I I know exactly what you're talking about, Christina, and I have definitely had that thought of like, oh, what's you know, what's the topic of this week's episode? You know, I, there's that tendency toward very special episodeness. At the same time, every single season, actually a little bit less this season than in others, I've had this feeling of like, it works on me, you know, like by the I swear every year, and I am so not a crier. Like people die, and I don't cry, but. It's had me bawling because somehow, like, even though I'm like, oh, what a TV show. Like, it's always a TV show. You never have that feeling of like, wow, this could be real life. No, it's not. But there's something about, like, what they are showing us. Maybe it is that I wish I could have had that particular kind of support or I wish I could have had that kind of processing, you know, where people are talking through things and really, like, feeling. They're in their feelings. and, And it's... There's something so admirable about it that even even seeing that, like, it's not hidden. It's not like you have to be really sensitive to get that, like, oh, they're working on this episode, on this issue now. But at the same time, like, it works for me. And I, you know, and the acting, they have, I have to say, too, that they've kind of toned that down. In the first season, I thought Schneider was way too much. Uh, Dr. Berkowitz, too. They were so... Like, they were in a different show, and they've kind of toned down those characters. They're not so, like, TV sitcom anymore. Um, but I don't know. This it's, A part of me thinks that that makes it all the more effective, because even for young people who, you know, haven't really watched, like, those old-fashioned sitcoms, like, it does touch some part of your brain that's like, yeah, this is a TV show. This is a comedy. Here's what you can expect, and yet you get something else. Yeah, one of the things that I like about the show um, is that it sits with those very special moments much longer than the a traditional sitcom would because most of the time they're just kind of like, oh, here's this heavy moment. Let's hurry up and get back to the laughs. But One Day at a Time sits with it. Um, so I wanted to talk about one moment with um, Elena. Um, she was at her quinceanera and she had come out and her father... Victor just wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared to accept that. And so when it was time for the father-daughter dance, he was gone. He disappeared. He wasn't there for her. And normally in a sitcom, it would have that moment where you realize he's not there. Then, you know, the daughter would look sad. And then you kind of go to commercial and come back and they've moved on or whatever. But this show, uh, One Day at a Time, sat with that moment. And so you saw Elena's pain. You saw how dis- disappointed the rest of the family was. And I thought that that was so powerful because you can't always just move on, you know, in your grief, whatever the situation may be. And so that that incident comes back throughout the seasons because it was traumatized for Elena and it was very bothersome for her and it comes back at the end of season three the the season finale um, for season three and I just really love that the way that the show just sits with those moments and does not let you have those easy you know band-aid solutions and I just I I just really love that yeah 
Yeah, that's true. I think more than other sitcoms, it also it, it's comfortable with stretching out a story arc over the length of a season or even a couple seasons. So you kind of see the conflict, you know, build or show up a couple different times in a couple different ways. Uh, what is it that you like about sitcoms, June? Do you find yourself laughing out loud at at this show? And Nicole, I'd be interested to hear you guys too, because I I feel like I had a couple. Like, ha! But I never really <laughs> laughed that much. And I think that's one reason why I I find it hard to say, you know, I really liked this show, even though I did find myself just playing it in the background while I was doing everything I did on Saturday. <laughs> um, I got to say that one day at a time does not make me laugh out loud. I think it's more like I'm there for the emotions and for the, like, mm. the modeling of relationships. Some shows do. Actually, sometimes shows that I find kind of gross can make me laugh. Like, it's it's a... It's one of those impulses that, like, you don't always laugh at what you want to laugh at kind of thing. Um, like, The Simpsons makes me laugh out loud. And, like, I think we all can concede it's not that good anymore, but it still makes me laugh. Um, so, I, yeah, I just think I often these are shows that really foreground politics in a way that is both subtle and uh, like more subtle than dramas. And, you know, they tend to be light and uh, it's it's kind of. I'm not going to say that I'm watching something that's not going to offend me because that is the lowest possible bar, but maybe it's also true. Mm. I like sitcoms a lot because I I think they're very witty. You have to be very witty and sharp sometimes. So the ones that I like that are currently um, airing are Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Superstore. Hmm. Fabulous, fabulous shows. I mean, the I've sharing, heard good things about Superstore. Yeah, I mean, again, it's that workplace drama mm-hmm. or workplace comedy um, that is also kind of um, making a statement about certain things. Like Superstore, they, there there was an immigration and deportation. Epi- well, those things come up more than once mm-hmm. because they have several characters who are first-generation immigrants. Um, you have, um, they talk about labor laws, striking, things like that, unions, like everything. And, and then there's also the whole will-they-won't-they they kind of part that comes in there. Um, so I do laugh out loud but they it's this the sharper comedies mm-hmm. like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and and Superstore that get me to laugh out loud sometimes when they're very ridiculous um that really gets me <laughs> I did not laugh out loud very often with one day at a time because I think um the nature of this kind of sitcom right that multi-cam uh, live audience things that in that very broad humor mm-hmm. you can see it coming from a mile away yeah and so that kind of annoys me yeah. a little bit but me what too. gets me again is like what we've talked about is those poignant moments those emotional moments where i'm just like wow i can't believe this show is is covering this topic and it's mm-hmm. such a gentle sweet but important and hard-hitting way at the same time and like june said it's very aspirational this is how you should talk about mm-hmm. this subject with your daughter this is how you you should talk about this subject with your son or whatever um and also with one day at a time i really like the fact that yes there are queer characters but they're not there to exist in relationship to each other they're not there just because oh here's this one queer person so now this other person is going to be the love interest for this queer person and that's (laughs) it there are queer people all around them um yeah Penelope goes to a support group and there are queer people in her support group there's a trans woman in her support group it's it's just beautiful (laughs) I just I'm like I'm so in love with this show yeah you know it's funny because I think I see a lot of similarity with Superstore even in the tone, because in Superstore, there's a manager who he does bug me because it feels like he's in a different show in the way that Schneider or Dr. Berkowitz were in One Day at a Time in the earlier seasons. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's very he's a very broad comedy in what is then often like a political show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, the way that they kind of integrate that type of comedy with a more kind of issue oriented focus is, is similar to One Day at a Time. I think that's about all the time we have for this topic. Uh, Listeners, if you've watched the show, which Gloria Calderon-Kellett wants you to, uh, please let us know what you think. I really enjoyed watching it, even though I'm not ready to say that I loved it. (laughs) 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Next topic. There's a plagiarism scandal positively roiling the world of romance fiction. Uh, Nicole, you are the one who called our attention to this topic. So why don't you give us a little recap of what's going on here? Sure. Um, on Twitter, romance novelist Courtney, Courtney Milan um, brought this scandal to our attention um, because she had another reader bring it to her attention. But um, there is a novelist, a Brazilian novelist named Christiane Seria. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. S-E-R-R-U-Y-A. And it turns out that she has grabbed um, passages from as of today, 51 different books. Um, there is a Twitter account called Caffeinated Faye, F-A-E, that is um, keeping a running count of all the books and authors who have been plagiarized. So it's, it's like 51 books and maybe like 28 authors at this point, something like I that. I saw 34 authors last 34, morning. yeah. Yeah. And... It's, she's taking these um, like snippets, sometimes whole passages, sometimes from even texts of uh, recipes, things like that, <laughs> um, historical essays, and fluffed her books with them, which are all self-published on via Amazon. Um, and it has brought to light this book stuffing thing. What happens with book stuffing is when you put all these books on Amazon, you self-publish them through the Kindle Unlimited series or whatever. Um, the more people read, the more pages of your book, you get paid per page. And so people have these very thick novels or they're putting out novellas two or three times a month to get more people to read more pages because it's all coming from this huge pot from Amazon. The royalties on how you're getting paid is coming from this huge pot on Amazon. And you know, if June gets more pages than I do, then that lessens the money that I get, <laughs> you know. So it becomes this very predatory experience. Um, so Christian Saruya has been accused of participating in this. And when the scandal first hit and she replied on Twitter, she said that she used ghostwriters. And it was the ghostwriters fault for plagiarizing these things. And um, but it turns out after people have researched that she has a history of going to ghostwriters and saying, here's this passage. I just need to make it fit in my book. What can you do? And then it leads to this situation where you've got 34 authors who have been hit and it kind of just takes the romance world by storm and everyone is very upset and has, everyone has an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The thing that really stood out to me as I was researching this was how, uh, personally hurt a lot of romance readers feel by this uh, plagiarism scandal. I think people have a very deep and uh, and personal and specific relationship with some of these authors. Mm-hmm. And then to find out that their work has been stolen by somebody else. And this is somebody who's sold a lot of books. Ruya has sold a ton of books. And the stakes are really high in romance. I don't think I realized until mm-hmm. I started reading about it that some of these authors are making a million dollars or more a year. And this is all self-published stuff on Amazon. So um, with the you know getting paid per page thing that you mentioned, Nicole, I had no idea the all the different ways you could try to game this system or game this algorithm where, you know, you you might put a link at the front of your book to say, oh, sign up for my newsletter. And then you click that link and it sends you to the back of the book to to get the information. And so, uh, you know, it's, people don't know exactly how the algorithm works, but the thinking is that then it'll count all those 2,000 pages or whatever <laughs> of your romance novel that you've, put, you know, tried to stuff with pages of who knows what. Uh, it'll count those pages as read and pay you for them. Um, it's, I mean, it, it, it boggled my mind to read yeah. about all the ways that 
this Kindle Unlimited platform has allowed people to um, to to try to you know almost like cheapen the act of writing books right, for right. money. Yeah, no, I was totally fascinated too. This this story was something I wasn't aware of, and now I just am obsessed. Uh, in part because it is about the incentives that Amazon sets up and what their incentives are. I mean, it, it's interesting that we focused on romance because I think romance is. I mean, I know in my experience, I'm I'm not reading romance novels now, but when I'm into them, I'm like into them, and I just like you. It, it's such a you know, you just want more, more, more. And when you finish, you want to read. Another, and, and, you know, it is formula is a positive in this world. You know what you like. And right. so you when you're ready for one, you just, you know, it doesn't what matters is that it, maybe it's an author, you know, maybe it's a formula that you like and you're just ready to click. And, you know, I know from working in bookstores before the age of ebooks that people would come in and they would buy just like an armful of romance novel like because it was Friday night and they were ready for the weekend like that's just how people consume this particular genre more than others I think uh, and the incentives that Amazon has put on of like okay we've got this Kindle Unlimited so that's a if you join this you know you can read as many books that are in this program for a month so it's very you know that that people who do read what you might call kindly commodity genres you know it's very there's a lot of incentive for them to sign up amazon um yeah amazon doesn't have that much incentive to police it and the writers have incentives to earn as much as they can and to keep their schemes quiet because if they, them you know as soon as other people know about them they'll do them and and go for that part and amazon will know about them and intervene so it's a fascinating world of schemes and 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 you know conspiracies and and I just kind of want to read a mystery novel about the world of Kindle Unlimited <laughs> and Amazon Amazon cheats uh, because it's absolutely fascinating as both a business story and a publishing story. Um, and yeah, and for the feelings of people who are involved, the writers who've been ripped off and the readers who, who have a real connection with these writers. Right. Part of um, where that connection comes from with the readers is that, you know, for so long, being a person who read romance novels, you had to keep it kind of a secret because romance yeah. novels are just dismissed and, you know, they're not really uh, given the same kind of weight as literary fiction or biography or whatever. Um, so it is it has been, a, you know, it's kind of been a dirty secret for so many people. And I am, I am an avid romance reader. Um, so that's why this really stands out to me. But then you also have people on the list who have been, um, who Saria probably copied from, um, like Nora Roberts, who has been in the business 30 years. Yeah. So if you have grown up with Nora reading her stuff, it does feel very personal. You've yeah. watched her transition and how her, you know, writing style changed and then whatever. And so then you feel like someone is stealing from my family kind of, and that huh. it becomes very personal that way. Yeah. I, Nora Roberts is an interesting case because she wrote I think you sent us these links Nicole mm -hmm. Nora Roberts wrote these very lengthy blog posts on her site about um plagiarism once she found out that Saria had taken some of her passages um she was talking about how a couple decades ago um maybe in the late 90s she won a lawsuit against another romance writer who had plagiarized her and she said the press treated it like a big joke sort of like uh, denigrating the genre and and the writers and the readers, you know, almost like how stupid must these readers be mm -hmm. to be reading all this plagiarized stuff or how uh, alike must all these books be that this is such a fruitful genre for plagiarism. Um, but then Roberts blamed the readers a little bit, too, where mm -hmm. she uh, said – by snapping up a book just because it's 99 cents online, you're encouraging this. Yeah. Uh, so she's saying, you know, readers have to be willing to pay more money for their novels. Otherwise, you are uh, playing into this system whereby writers are incentivized to not only plagiarize, but engage in all these other book stuffing sort of cheapening tactics. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I think that was really fascinating because she's right, you know, like you do. It's like anything else. If you buy something cheaper than you know it can really be made for, you're kind of enabling something to happen. 
that you might not know the details. You might not know the details of how you know people are gaming the Amazon Kindle Unlimited system. But you know, if you're getting all this stuff, it's not free, but like you're paying ten dollars a month and you can get all the stuff you want. That really, that can't. That can't be. Uh, that can't really incentivize good writing. And it was really interesting to kind of see again the incentives for you know using ghostwriters uh, when you essentially have to have again don't have to have but when having a different book every month can really bring in major bucks and really kind of keep you uh, earning like. Who can do that? Right. It does create unrealistic unrealistic expectations for the writer, um, which is another problem that this creates. Like, oh, this person comes out with a book every month. Why can't you? Why does it take you a year for the sequel to this first book, you know, yeah. to come out? Um, the thing about the pricing, because I've had issues with pricing for ebooks, particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone like Anora Roberts, who's been in the game for a very long time, will come out with a book. You know, it goes immediately to hardback, right? Which is twenty five dollars, and then you go to look for the ebook, and it is twenty five dollars, or maybe like twenty dollars, and you're just like, "There's, why am I paying the same price for yeah. two very different formats?" Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people will wait for yeah. those two ninety nine ninety nine cent free promotional. Um, you know, campaigns Mm -hmm. to buy a book. And yes, many people do buy those 99 cent books and don't read them. They're just collecting them because I don't know when the price is going to go up. Mm -hmm. And that creates a problem as well. So I understand where the concern is for that. But also people just need to recognize that not everybody can buy a $20 ebook, you know, um, and then read, read it in a day and feel like, They've got their money's worth, no matter how much of a fan they are um, of the particular genre. And so there needs to be some sort of reckoning. And maybe this is what will lead to that in the publishing industry about pricing for physical books versus ebooks and things like that. Yeah. And I do think there's even outside of romance, the world of self-publishing, because it is less regulated. You know, it's not like publishers are... Uh, you know, super clean hand. You know, they have their tactics too, but also they have business incentives to you know not not be known for doing um, you know sneaky things. Yeah. Um, whereas if you are you know, especially when it's not like you're saying this is June Thomas Promotions and this is my name. You know, you're you might have a, a whole bunch of companies with weird names. You know, the, the, it's not exactly you know if you're. I'm not saying it's therefore that the smart thing to do is to cheat, but there are fewer, um, not to overuse this word, but there are fewer incentives to do the right thing. Um, if there are little tricks that you can do to improve your uh, your discoverability, to improve the you know the page count of your books, to improve um, the just the way that you show up in searches, I get why people do them. Um, I think it, and I don't think it's limited to romance. I think it's just the kind of the family nature of romance that has kind of elevated it. And the fact, you know, has alerted authors so quickly that their books have been ripped off. But because people are recognizing their passages, which is an incredible testimony to the connection that readers have with writers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's also a genre where pseudonyms are accepted and and not given a second thought like if you think about the world of uh you know literary fiction or something um elena ferrante like Mm -hmm. people all over the world or were before she was unmasked trying to figure out who she is in in the romance world you know people have pen names everyone just sort of accepts it and i i was reading about you know some authors who will uh, once, it, you know, if they're found out or if readers are turned off by the fact that, oh, they just sort of repackaged an old book into this new book, switched around a couple parts and maybe added a new chapter at the end just to try to game the system. I'm not going to read that author anymore. Well, they'll just come out with another pen name. Yeah. Um, there was this, uh, I, I guess, more or less famous case of a man who was using a woman's pen name and he was writing like rape fantasies under this woman's pen name, which, 
you can interpret those very differently if they're coming from uh, an author you believe is a woman versus whether they're coming from an author you believe is a man. I I feel like this there are so many aspects of this genre that make it a fruitful ground for exploitation. And part of it is because, uh, as you said, Nicole, a lot of people just don't take the genre very seriously. And so a plagiarism scandal in the romance world is less likely to get a lot of outrage and coverage in mainstream press than a plagiarism scandal in, uh, you know, like Jill Abramson, we've seen with her new book where she has been outed as as having plagiarized several other people's passages from books and articles. Uh, and and the press has been talking about it for weeks, but mm-hmm. I didn't hadn't heard about this until you brought it to our attention, Nicole. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, again, people just kind of discredit romance and part of that, and I talk about this a lot, is just that, you know, if something is majority um, for women by women, of course it must be you know, terrible (laughs) or it must be, you know, something very fluffy and light and not just it doesn't have the same kind of heft as literary fiction. Um, But romance novels are really good and I think everyone should read them. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, part of the, I guess, disdain is that people feel they're very formulaic and they're just like fairy tales for adult women. And maybe that is part of it. But when you look at some epic like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's very formulaic. You when you break down the elements of that, that I mean, anyway, but yes, I mean, those things are also formulaic, but because it's by Mm -hmm. a man and because there's like these otherworldly creatures or whatever involved then it's something else you know in the same way that Nicholas Sparks doesn't want to be considered a romance novelist right that is absolutely what he does and his <laughs> stuff is very formulaic mm-hmm. like there's no yeah. I mean when you, once you see it put, adapted to the screen you know that somebody's going to be in a rainstorm or they're going to be <laughs> there's a love scene in the shower somebody's <laughs> going to get like physically literally wet at some point and then somebody the the main obstacle between the two people is going to be killed right. some kind of way like that is a Nicholas Nicholas Sparks book Um, and nobody has a problem with that because it's a man right Mm -hmm. or at least we Mm -hmm. think you know Mm -hmm. uh, who knows at this point who's writing his (laughs) stuff right Um, (laughs) but I just um, I think part of what we need to do is just treat romance novels like any other kind of genre you know all genres have a formula to them science fiction speculative Mm -hmm. fiction biography has to have certain hits and Mm -hmm. things like that it's it's it doesn't take anything away from these different genres. And we just have to move past the idea that people wanting a happily ever after is a bad thing. Hmm. Do you want to recommend some uh, romance writers to us? Oh, wow. Please. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Um, Jasmine Guillory. um, She has the proposal, the wedding date. um, And there's a third book coming out in that series. I think either later this year or maybe beginning early next year. So Jasmine Guillory, of course, Nora Roberts, who is like amazing. Um, and Nora Roberts also writes under the pen name when we were talking about pen names. Um, she writes under the pen name J.D. Robb. Um, that's R-O-B-B. And those are like her futuristic novels where they're like in 2030 or something like that. Um, and Eve Dallas is this cop who, you know, gets a lot of stuff done and has to deal with trauma and all this kind of good stuff. Um, then there's also Alyssa Cole, um, Tessa Dare. Uh, gosh. It's a great um, name. Yeah. Know, right? <laughs> uh, then there's Janine Frost, who I love. She does paranormal romance. I love paranormal. If there is a werewolf and a vampire <laughs> in it, please send it my way. I love that kind of stuff. And that's the thing. There are all these subgenres right. in romance. So you can find what you want. Do you want historical? Mm-hmm. Do you want some Western stuff? Do you want some Regency? Do you want futuristic? Do you want the werewolves and the shapeshifters? Like there's something for everybody there. There. And it's um, it's actually one of the few genres that boasts a strong, diverse mm-hmm. um, authorship throughout it. Um, that and I mean that's a different subject, but it's it's very I don't know I yeah. just I just love romance. So <laughs> those yeah. are some and names. I love knowing that Stacey Abrams <laughs> writes or has written romance yes. novels yeah. too. Yes, I've been wanting to read some of her stuff. Me too. Uh, can I just put in a word too? I, I am a big fan of uh, this lesbian uh, romance novelist called Radcliffe and my favorite series <laughs> of hers involves uh, the first daughter, that is to say the daughter of the president and the head of her um, her security detail, you know, her... That was on Veep. 
Yes, That's the exactly. Story on it, it absolutely was. It was. It was uh, homage. Who, who copied who? Who plagiarized who? There. Oh, Radcliffe <laughs> came first by many years, um, and I, I. And it's like I kind of. I mean, I, f- I, I go through this struggle because I'm like, oh, this is this is so obvious. And yet every single time, because you know what's coming, you, you mm-hmm. can foresee the beats. There's always going to be a medical challenge like, you know, we know what's going to come up. And yet um, it, it's really enjoyable. And there's a sort of there's another couple in the um, Secret Service. It's uh, like a secondary couple where every single there's this is a multi book series. Every single uh, book there's like the the one of them is less experienced, and there's this like it's not exactly first time because they've had now <laughs> thousands of first times, but there's like an an experience gap that is really like that's clearly part of this uh, the thrill of this particular relationship, and it is really interesting to see how they can redo the formula every time it's it is incredibly creative yeah that's that's the thing you want to know yes there's this familiar pattern but how do they refresh it how do they make it new and that's what keeps me coming back because there really has been um quite an evolution in romance novels and because i remember when i first started reading them the thing was uh, forcing a couple together because, the, you know, the woman got pregnant and they had to deal with, <laughs> wow. you know, whatever. Um, and are just everybody had to get married at the end of the book. Now there's not that, you know, now you can have a single parent and, you know, the people meet and they just at the end of the book, they are together, but they're not necessarily getting married, you know, because times have changed and you don't, mm-hmm. you can't fall in love in three days, you know, over the course of like running from the serial killer or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. There has to be, um, people demanded a bit more realism in the romance novels and the, the authors delivered. Whereas in the lesbian romances, suddenly they all end in a marriage these days, which didn't used to be the uh, the case. But, so this sounds an, like a good dissertation, like the, <laughs> compu- the different arcs in heterosexual sexual versus lesbian uh, romance novels in changing marital norms. In this TED Talk, I shall. <laughs> um, this actually makes me think of One Day at a Time, too, the idea of the the being able to see something from a mile away and mm-hmm. the loose sort of formula that it follows is part of what makes it feel like what I read one critic call a big warm hug. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you... There's a comfort in knowing like, okay, none of these like two main people that I care about are going to die. But within that, what's going to happen? Yeah. Right. Exactly. All right. Listeners, do we have any romance fans out there? Would love to take your recommendations. You can email us at thewavesatslate.com. All right. Reply, guys. So last summer, two scientists, one woman, one man, published on Twitter a taxonomy of nine types of men who consistently reply to women on Twitter. And not just normal replying, this is like replying to every single one of a particular woman's tweets, especially if they're calling attention to sexism or something like that. Um, So the two scientists called these guys the reply guys. Uh, They encompass from the from the most benign, a guy who gives somebody unsolicited advice all the time or, or unsolicited encouragement all the way to sort of your standard harasser or troll. Um, but this month, people outside the science world started catching on. Uh, Chloe Bryan at Mashable wrote a really good piece last week. She characterized the reply guys as a mostly harmless but decidedly annoying phenomenon. And for me, that distinction between harmful and annoying is sort of the crux of the reply guy phenomenon. So the, most of the time, besides, you know, those those textbook harassers or whatever, these aren't people who you would necessarily report to Twitter, not even necessarily someone you would want to block, but just men who relentlessly take up your mental space and space on your timeline. Um, did this, what do you two think? Do you, did this framing of reply guy ring true to your Twitter experience? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I tend to write about pop culture things, um, and my pop, my podcast is about pop culture and desire. Um, so I'm often talking about things like 
you know, Avengers movies and uh, comic book stuff. And I am not a Things comic that book. men believe are their yes. own yes. unique Robins. purview. Absolutely. And um, when Netflix started canceling some of the Marvel shows like Daredevil and Iron Fist, um, I made a comment about, uh, about how, you know, it wasn't a good look. Like the optics of that was they weren't good because those were the most diverse shows of the of the um I'm sorry what, no, of no. the group of yeah. those were the most diverse shows of the group of Marvel shows um and so I was like you know what does that mean you know whatever and all these men just you know you don't know what you're talking about if you knew anything about the comics you know that kind <laughs> of stuff um so I got I got almost everything from this category from these nine types of reply guys I got everything um another time i commented on the avengers movie where uh infinity war where peter parker kind of you know they know snaps if you're not familiar this evil guy snaps his fingers and like half of the world disappears right oh wow and yeah um and peter parker aka spider-man was one of those people who disappears spoiler alert um <laughs> And I was like, it just doesn't make sense for Peter Parker, this 15, 16 year old boy, for his last words to be about um, Iron Man or to Iron Man. Like he had no thought to Aunt May, the woman who has raised him since he was little, you know. And I was like, it would be more poignant. It would have had a more emotional impact if this young child, I mean, not a young child, but this very young man, at least, would acknowledge this woman in his life. But because I said he needed to acknowledge the woman in his life, all of these men, what are you talking about? Of course you're going to just, he's right there. Iron Man is right there. That's who he's going to see. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but I've also had, you know, near-death experiences. And it was, I did not think about the person that was just immediately there. I thought about hmm. my family. I thought about the people, you know, that I loved and what that means that I'm not going to see them anymore. So, but all these guys, because they knew about comic books as opposed to <laughs> me knowing about a near death, ex- my own near death experience, they felt they were more, uh, more of an expert in this. And it's, I mean, I, I muted the, um, the tweets because I was just like, I can't deal with, with these notifications and, you know, whatever anymore. So, yes, I, I'm very well aware of all of these uh, categories. What was, did it, uh, what was your feeling when you first read these nine types of reply guys? And just to give a couple more examples, there's the tone police, which is the guy who was like, wow, you seem angry. That's so rude of you. Uh, there's the the gaslighter who says like, oh, well, men experience this, too, you know, or or this happened to me once, too. Um there's the cookie manster who says like, oh, you know, hashtag not all men. Like, I would never do that. Uh, you know, most men don't aren't so bad, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what was your reaction when you looked at this taxonomy for the first time? I thought it was everything was spot on. It made perfect sense, um, particularly the sea lion, which <laughs> is the guy who is like, why can't you just t- talk to me? I'm just trying to debate and get, figure out what you're talking about. Just oh my answer God. my question, you know, and the questions are disingenuous. They're clearly um, have a purpose in asking those things, which are to get you to look as stupid as possible. Um, so I get that a lot and I don't even engage that. And that's the thing. I don't engage these guys for the most part. Um, I don't even mute them. Sometimes I do block which comes up in this um, as we talk about, as we learn more about the reply guys. But I thought these were like deadly accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Jean? Yeah, I, you know, especially now that I don't really write uh, much anymore, I, I'm exposed to it less, but it's certainly behavior that I'm very familiar with. And I think that it is interesting how it affects us because, for the most part, you know, in this sort of general style of response, as you said earlier, it's not, it doesn't feel harmful, it doesn't feel threatening, but it is draining. It is demanding women's time, it is demanding women's attention uh, in a way that is not necessarily what they want to do with their time. And I think, uh, although it's a gross gender generalization, I think women do feel more uh, obligation to respond who you know they don't like to just say i'm not dealing with that until they've kind of gone through this process of like you know what i'm feeling this this is draining and i really am not getting anything out of it i'm losing time i'm losing energy i'm losing focus um and i think it's one of those like these kinds of 
you know, online things that are hard to explain to people who don't live in that world. It's hard yeah. for them to kind of feel what it's like. Um, and I have this weird memory of uh, like many years ago now, I was, I was uh, like visiting another city and I was uh, hanging out with this woman who I knew from, well, hanging out with this woman who was a lesbian separatist and some guys came up and asked her to take a photo, you know, just in that way that this is before we all had cameras on our phones and you actually had to ask somebody to take your camera and take a photo and she just said no I don't you know I don't do things that men ask you know <laughs> oh, men, that's amazing. men are always wanting women to do things and at the time that seemed crazy to me now online I I'm like yeah they like yeah there is so much demand there's so, like do not why are you always wanting things from me why you you know and I think as you said, Nicole, it's often disingenuous. It's hard to tell, but it sure seems disingenuous. Um, so yeah. I'm very aware of the drain that it often represents. You must get this a lot, Christina. I do. I um, probably not as much as Nicole, actually, but I, uh, I, I was thinking of this one guy who I muted recently. Um, I try not to block because, I mean, unless somebody was really – um, harassing me. I guess there was one case where somebody was going through and finding pictures of me and my friends and stuff, and I blocked him. But usually I'll mute because I don't want to give people the satisfaction of knowing that I've blocked them. So I mute them and then I don't have to ever see them again. Um, but uh, there was this one guy who, uh, you know, it was almost every tweet, which is sort of the nature of the reply guy. And it was like he just had to it was like he thought we were in a conversation all the time, but we're not. I'm just putting things online. And for a while, I sort of convinced myself that it wasn't anything to be annoyed by. I sort of felt bad for being annoyed. Like, well, here I am writing on Twitter, sort of inviting commentary. Um, I have no right to be annoyed by this one guy who replies to everything. Sometimes it would be him sort of like um, responding to a joke with his own joke mm-hmm. or uh, – or he agreed with something I wrote or he didn't agree with something I wrote or he would when he didn't agree with something, he would want to know my comeback to his disagreement. And I was just like, why do you feel like you know me? Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, I mean, that's the whole point of Twitter. It it reduces everything to a level of familiar conversation such that even brands are talking like two friends talking to each other. So I guess it makes sense that some people would feel like, oh, you know, or or, or especially if I've liked a couple of your tweets, like, oh, we have this rapport, even though we've never met. Um, I do have one woman who does it to me, an older lesbian. Um, I don't mind her as much, uh, but I've definitely muted a lot of men. And it also made me think of something that um, Gene Demby from NPR has said where he feels like because he has a very active Twitter persona, a lot of very devoted Twitter followers, that he has white people reaching out to him as if he's their confidant or personal advisor on race issues. So they'll tweet him to be like, oh, can you discuss this thing? Or like, let me know if this is racist or something like that. Um, And I've definitely had people tweet me with, uh, not on race issues, but on uh, gender or sexuality to be like, oh, I can you tell me what you think of this? Like, uh, no, I'm just a person on Twitter. You know, I I ha- actually have my own assignments that I'm working on right now. Yeah, I I tend to mute um, for the same reasons. You don't want to give them the satisfaction because sometimes that's what they're doing. They want to be blocked so they can say, aha, I guess it was yes. too much for you. You had to block me. Um, so I enjoy the mute button very much ever since Twitter um, established that. And I also have my notifications set up now where I don't receive, I don't see any notifications of anybody that I'm not already following. And so um, that means that sometimes I do have to search my name to make sure I'm not missing anything important or, um, you know, because I do want to acknowledge sometimes when people, particularly those who listen to the podcast or who have read some of my work and they want to give a compliment, (laughs) I do want to acknowledge them with like a little fave or something like that. I don't necessarily want to engage them too much, but I do want to acknowledge because I I know how it feels when you've read something and you just want to tell somebody, hey, I really like that. It resonated with me, whatever. So I want to make sure that people understand that I hear them um, in some ways, but for the most part, I 
I cannot engage in these people, especially men who just want to, who just want to take up my time um, and, and who make these unnecessary demands on me and or try to show me their expertise when I didn't ask. I don't, I don't care what, how long you've been reading comic books. I don't care <laughs> how you feel about this superhero. I know how I feel about him and that's enough for me. <laughs> you know, like I, I just, just, I don't care. <laughs> and that yeah. really bothers men, some men who just cannot fathom that there are people who don't, who don't care what they think. And, and what, you know, but when you tell them, well, you don't care what I think, you know, <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> they don't, you know, they just can't understand the irony. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what do you think is the impulse behind tweets like this? Do you think there could be a good hearted just, oh, you know, I enjoy responding to people who I follow on Twitter? I think sometimes, yes. I mean, people do want to genuinely engage and they just want to talk about their favorite things. Um, and I, I understand that. But once they become very persistent, that's when the problem happens. Once they, uh, again, just make demands, they, they expect you to engage and you don't owe them anything. And that really bothers them um, because I think it gets into that sticky thing of entitlement Mm -hmm. and people don't want to face their own entitlement in life. Um, And, you know, what men, um, I think a lot of men, you know, they're trying to feel like they are so put upon now um, with having to admit their privilege in certain ways, having to admit their feelings of entitlement and things like that. And they just do not want to do the mental and emotional work of that. And so when you tell them that uh, it, it destroys them. Um, I had a friend, uh, he was talking about, he had swiped on an app and he matched with this woman. They were talking and then she was, she unmatched him. And he got very upset because he was like, how dare she not? She didn't even go on a date with me. And I was like, she doesn't have to go on a date. Maybe it was something that you said that turned her off. And he just he just was like, well, she owed me at least a date. I was like, she didn't owe you Oof. anything. The whole point of chatting before the date is to figure out if you want to go on the date. And she figured out she did not want to go on the date. So you have to let that go. And he and I was like, you're being very gendered in your expectations right now. And that really messed him up. And so we haven't actually talked to him oh, since then Um because he was just not prepared to deal with that level of introspection. And that's what happens on Twitter or on Instagram or wherever on social media where somebody expects, I've acknowledged you. Now you have to acknowledge me. No, Hmm. I don't. Hmm. I do not. Yeah. I hope that guy listens to this podcast and (laughs) might change his tune. I'm sure he listens to this feminist podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, June, you were going to say something. No, I was just going to say, like, I'm aware uh, how hard this is because, as especially as journalists, um, you know, I think we have to be aware that our relationship to Twitter or social media generally is not the same as for other people. It's kind of part of our job to broadcast certain things that are kind of they're they're part of us. There's something that we feel, something that we think, something that we've written, something that's important to us. But it's not the same as. It's, it's not quite our inner selves or our real selves. I mean, it's not a fake self exactly, but it's, it's like it's part of our job. And so like on this podcast, we ask for feedback. We ask to hear what people have thought of what we've said. And so there is at a certain point a uh, like we're asking for a certain amount of response. We're asking for a certain amount of engagement to use, I think, an appropriate word that you've used, Nicole. But that we're not saying we want to have this lifelong relationship with you and, and write to you every day. Right. And there's also this um, <laughs> social media creates a sense of over-familiarity mm-hmm. and that has become a problem. Like just because I'm tweeting that I like Chris Evans today, that doesn't mean that you have to tag me in every Chris Evans thing <laughs> ever. You know, oh my God. Um, <laughs> do people do stuff like that? Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's just like, I just can't, there's, you know, there's no way I can respond to all of that, um, you know, and also people want to show you things like, you know, I know this about you. So let me show you that I know this about you. And sometimes it's a little creepy. Yeah. Yes. Agree. Yeah. And so I think for people who maybe aren't familiar with that kind of or, or who aren't the object of that kind of constant response to their work, it might feel like, oh, you know, 
I'm showing I care or I'm or or they'll be happy to know they have a fan of their work. Um, but there's not they, they don't know that it can be extremely exhausting to be the recipient of all that on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah. All right. Reply guys. Listeners, are you a reply guy? Do you have a reply guy in your life? Do you think this is a BS framing and we're just pathologizing the way men communicate on Twitter? Let us know at thewaves@slate.com. All right, time for our recommendations. Who'd like to go first? Uh, well, I will go first. Um, I don't have. It's not necessarily a thing, but I recommend um, in this age of binging immediately, waiting to binge. Mm, hot take. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you know, it's hard because you don't want to be spoiled by stuff that happens, you know, people giving away everything on Twitter and whatever. Um, but once you don't have all these other voices in your head telling you, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, then you can turn to it and you can just be um, you know, just binging with yourself or, you know, if you have whoever with you, but still just like your own thoughts. All right. And um, so with that, so, you know, waiting to binge and also avoiding reading anything about whatever you're um, binging so that you can go into it fresh with your own thoughts um, and your own expectations and you just move forward. I did that recently with Russian Doll, which is still, you know, it's fairly new still. Um, but, you know, immediately as it came out, people had watched the whole thing in that same day because the episodes are 30 minutes. So you can kind of like mm-hmm. speed through it. Um, but I decided to wait a few weeks before I went into it. I didn't read anything and I was just very impressed um, by it. I still haven't finished it, but I still just know that I feel better about what I'm watching now that I don't have my whole Twitter timeline telling me how to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, tweeting while you're watching something with, with your timeline is fun. Um, but sometimes you just need the piece of yourself to enjoy something. So uh, wait to binge. <laughs> just give it, you know, That's a few a weeks yeah. and wait. I would also recommend Russian Doll 2 in your own time. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed watching that. But the thing I'm recommending this week is uh, Taking Turns, a graphic novel by M.K. Serwick. Um, I found this book via another book that I read by one of my favorite authors, Rebecca Mackay. Uh, it's called The Great Believers. The Great Believers came out um, last summer. I loved it so much. I read even the acknowledgments at the end of the book or the citations. Um, and the book, which is uh, part of it takes place in um, Chicago during the AIDS epidemic, um, Rebecca Mackay acknowledges this book, this graphic novel by M.K. Serwick, as something that helped inform her novel. So I was like, I've got to read that book now. Um, it's so good. It's uh, M.K. Serwick was a nurse oh. in an AIDS unit in a hospital in Chicago in the 90s. Um, and she talks about and illustrates the way that this AIDS unit became really a community and a kind of family and um, a model for how AIDS treatment and care should look in in other communities um, in terms of taking care of all the different kinds of needs in a person's life, not just medical. Um, and also she uh, she explores the different issues of regarding drawing boundaries with patients mm-hmm. that come up when you're you know, with somebody in these really intense moments of their life, sometimes ushering them through death, um, and how that differs from the way doctors and patients interact in, say, the cancer unit or something like that. Um, She also interviewed a bunch of people she worked with, so it's a little bit of an oral history, too. Um, It's really, really good. Highly recommended. It's called Taking Turns. You know, I have that book. I think it was recommended to me by a Slate podcast producer and also a graphic novelist, uh, Benjamin Frisch, uh, and oh my god, and I've been, I've kind of, you know, it's been on my pile that gets over tall, and I weeded out, but I've kept it around, but I've not read it, and so, guess what I'm doing tonight? I'm definitely digging that from out of the pile and actually reading it. Yeah, it it won't take you too long to read. Um, you definitely should. It it was very 
touching mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Cool. What do you recommend? So I know that I have a habit of recommending things from the BBC radio iPlayer channel because I am obsessed with listening to British audio dramas and, and other things. But there was a book. So that one of the things that the BBC often does several times every week is they kind of serialize a book. Um, and Usually I only listen if it's a book that I know or an author I'm interested in and I don't just kind of randomly listen. But I did randomly listen a couple of weeks ago. I started a book and it absolutely gripped me. I'd never heard of it and now I am determined to read multiple books by this author because it was just a a strange and spectacular book. So um, the book is called Ladder to the Sky. It's by John Boyne. And I'm not going to say anything about it because it's very twisty and very full of surprises. And I, because I didn't know anything, enjoyed being surprised. And I don't want to spoil that for anybody else. But um, I'm sure you could read the novel. I'm sure it's wonderful. But I really recommend the, uh, the, the British series, the BBC series, which you can get on the BBC Radio iPlayer, which is completely free and legal in the US. Um, it's 10, 15 minute episodes. And it is really, really fascinating. And uh and very well serialized, I will say. That sounds good. I would love a 15-minute episode of anything at this yeah, point. Yeah, there have been some good ones recently. The, the L-shaped room was also on Rabbit at Rest, which I would never have read, but it was very well serialized. Uh, so, yeah, the, I, I do like a, a book at bedtime, as they often brand it in Britain. <laughs> All right, that's our show this week. Thank you so much to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For June Thomas and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.